Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Bloomberg Intelligence is now on a new podcast feed. Our show is ramping up to five days a week with new episodes coming your way every weekday. But to get to the new show, you need to head to our new podcast feed. Click the link in the description for this episode to head there now. Join us for timely daily analysis of the industries and companies that shape markets on the new daily Bloomberg Intelligence podcast. Click the link in the description below to find the new podcast. And for a limited time, you can listen to the latest episode on this feed right now. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney. The real outperformance has been the U.S. corporate high yield. Are the companies lean enough? Have they trimmed all the fat? The semiconductor business is a really cyclical business. Breaking market headlines and corporate news from across the globe. Do investors like the M&A that we've seen? These are two big time blue chip companies. The window between the peak and cut changing super fast. Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney. On Bloomberg Radio. On today's Bloomberg Intelligence Show, we dig inside the big business stories impacting Wall Street and the global markets. Each and every week, we provide in-depth research and data on some of the 2,000 companies and 130 industries our analysts cover worldwide. Today, we take a look at momentum for cruise lines in 2024. Plus, the future of award shows may be at risk. But first, it was a real week of earnings with names like Netflix, Tesla, and IBM reporting. For more on the numbers from IBM, we spoke with Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Technology Analyst Anurag Rana. One of the biggest things we talked about was the free cash flow number came out at 12 billion. I think we were, you know, we were slightly above the, the street and saying that, you know, I'll be happy if they do 11 billion. So I think that really speaks both to the organic growth rate of the company, operational efficiencies, you know, improving margins, uh, taking care of accounts receivables, all sorts of things. So I, I think it's really good print for uh, for uh, IBM in terms of free cash flow, but also the, uh, you know, the guidance on the, um, um, you know, organic growth rate, because we were going in. So in fourth quarter, they did 3% growth rate in constant currency. We thought at least for the first, you know, few quarters, they're going to talk about 3 to 4% and then accelerate. But they straight away went with a mid-single digit number. So I think overall, good for IBM, good for the rest of the tech space. Um, you know, I feel pretty happy about it. Um, what I know this is kind of a, probably a dumb question, but like what in IBM's business model to a Luddite like me, it, are they doing well? Like break down the different categories in a way that makes sense to Alex. <laughs> so they, I mean, they still are a very big piece uh, of the entire tech ecosystem. They have very strong relationships. They have a good consulting business. They have Red Hat. They sell mainframes. Now, remember one thing. I mean, I, I know people got very, is getting very excited, but if software spending is climbing between 10 to 12%, 
IBM's still growing, you know, six to seven, so they're still underperforming the entire broader software space. But that's okay because, you know, when you go from three to six, that's a big change also in terms of the growth rates. This is just a matter of overall tech spending improving after two years of underinvestment. This is something that we have been saying for so long. Tech as a portion of total GDP is a very small number. Most of the companies around the world, barring the consumer technology companies that we see, have underinvested in technology. So when you have rail, rail you know, companies or airlines or auto insurance companies, they really need to be more digital. And one way to get digital is to move a lot of their uh, infrastructure to the cloud. So all of those things play in well. We have not seen good spending in two years. I'm pretty happy that uh, 2024, may, we may see a rebound. How does IBM and fit into the AI discussion? Because I know the, the CEO called out the client demand for AI is accelerating. How do they play in that space? So majority of the stuff that they're going to do is on the consulting side. So if okay. you are a large company, you need to figure out what to do. They have a lot of consultants that can help you clean up the data, you know, use whichever model we want to use. You want to use something from OpenAI, Anthropic, all these companies that are out there, they'll help you with that, help you train the models, and then at the end of the day, make it for your business case. It's not as easy as just you know using ChatGPT and answering questions. Um, for this, for an enterprise use, you need to do a lot of data cleanup, data aggregation, because that's what's needed to clean up your, uh, you know, the models itself. How fast and long can that kind of growth rate of six, seven percent go? I think if this year they are able to go to six, seven percent, you know, I could expect then, you know, another 100 to 200 basis points improvement next year. And that's actually not a bad deal because you remember the old IBM just about four or five years ago, they were not growing at all. So in, in order for them to actually come up with a high single digit number next year would be, would be really welcomed by the market. So what's the read through here, Anurag, for, you know, greater tech here from IBM is can yeah, I say, I, I'm just going to go out and start buying more of these names? I'm looking at like NVIDIA, for example, up 25% year to date, and of course up 220% over the trailing 12 months. I guess this is a pretty good read through. Is that, can I do that? Yeah. So, for, you know, we had uh, run a CIO survey back in December and, you know, we were, we kind of got the indication that it's going to be a year of spending uh, more aggressively compared to the last two in 2024. But, you know, the way we had built that and, you know, we got the chip strength going on right now that probably carries on till the summer. And then after that, we see, uh, you know, strength in the software and the and the consulting area, which are more of the downstream play. But it's possible that we may see that bounce back, you know, as early as second quarter or, you know, going into it because, um, you know, things, I, I think the leading indicators are good at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, so so I'm, I'm pretty optimistic that, you know, when we were thinking about a second half recovery for tech spending, you know, it may actually happen in second quarter or maybe even as late, late as uh, first quarter. Our thanks to Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Technology Analyst, Anurag Rana. Let's turn now to airlines, where names like American, Southwest, and Alaska Air surprised analysts by beating expectations. For more, we spoke with Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Defense and Airlines Analyst, George Ferguson. You know, we got American, uh, Alaska, and Southwest. Yields were down in the domestic business on all three. Hmm. Alaska yields were down six or seven percent. Uh, American yields down similar number. Uh, Southwest really just let a uh, load factor fade away into the 70s and took a yield down sort of two percent. So to me, you know, they're guiding to, to better results as, as you know, next year as, as we get into 1Q doesn't look great. But as we get past 1Q, the, the overall guidance for the year looks a bit better. So airlines, I think, think things are going to firm as they get into next year, but I don't think it looks like a healthy market at all from the numbers I'm seeing in Q4. 
So give us a sense of where we are just in terms of air travel. Have we established a new post-pandemic normality in terms of where leisure traffic is and where business traffic is? Do we kind of know how that market looks? Uh, so comments from United were that business traffic wasn't back to 2019 levels. Uh, they said they saw hopeful signs in one queue. Uh, so business hasn't come back fully. Is this the new normal? I would guess it is, right? Because we're, uh, you know, we're, I don't know when the pandemic actually sort of ended, but we're probably a year and a half past. And I would expect most of, you know, normality to have returned to our lives. So it seems like we still have some level of deficit on pre-pandemic business travel, but leisure travel has definitely exceeded that. I think the airlines have just sold the capacity they would have sold the businesses into the leisure side. And I think that's making the fare softer. So you say that the quarter didn't look that great, first quarter looked soft, I get that. But then you said that after Q1, things start to look a little better. What's gonna look a little better? Is it business travel? Is it we just keep doing vacation stuff? We do it domestically rather than internationally? Or is it still across the board? I, I said that after Q1, the airlines think it's gonna look better. I don't, I don't see it, right? I think the big leisure um, bounce back was last year, uh, 2023. And I think that you could see softer domestic yields all through the year. But, you know, we had Scott Kirby at United Airlines earning earlier in the week. And he's telling us how, you know, he's getting traction from premium products. And that's going to help him drive better profitability through next year. I mean, you know, companies like Alaska, um, <clears throat> they have premium product, but I think they're going to roughly the same amount. Unlike United, that's adding it. Southwest does, has no premium product. Uh, so there's and there's a lot of other airlines that have no premium product, and I think they're going to be fighting for the, the base leisure traveler. I think it's going to be difficult. But hey, George, against the airlines, they could see, yep. see it coming. Sorry, George, you're out in Los Angeles, the Aerospace Supply Chain Conference. How is the supply chain for the airline industry? Can they get the planes they need? Uh, that's rough. <laughs> so uh, we saw the news on Boeing about not allowing them to increase. The discussion at the aerospace supplier conference is all about labor, labor, and labor. Wow, there's Still. been a lot of turnover. In, yeah, there's a lot of turnover in the industry. The backfill needs to be trained. They're not fully trained. They're not efficient, and there's still people having a hard time finding labor. Mm -hmm. And so, the U.S. aerospace industry is in, in pretty tough, tough straits. I think. Mm -hmm. I, I think young kids. You know, a lot of discussion here is that. Young kids, you know, young professionals don't want to come to this industry. They'd rather work for Amazon. They'd rather work for Google than go to work in the aerospace industry. And so they're having a real hard time backfilling and training and keeping people in the industry. So to that point, what happens if Boeing isn't allowed to produce the plane that the FAA said? I can't even keep track, for, to be honest with you. But if they can't produce it, what happens to those that have ordered it? <laughs> I mean, right now, what the FAA said is that Boeing can't increase production, right? Okay, so they're increase. already of the max. They're already building, they were building about 31 a month last year. They were supposed to rate break to about 38 a month at the end of the year. The question is, have they? So will the FAA let them continue at 38? And then as I understand it, the FAA is going to inspect their manufacturing processes because they're quite concerned, obviously, after the Alaska incident to make sure it's stable make sure that Boeing can build aircraft uh, safely. Uh, so my guess is you got something that's gonna last part of this quarter. I mean, there's only so many sites they can really inspect, right? You've got a lot of inspection down in Wichita, 
a lot of inspection up in Renton, Washington. Those are the two main factories. The FAA could go deeper and do some of the other suppliers, which they probably will, but there's not a lot of sites to inspect. My guess is that deliveries for customers that expected airplanes in 2024 could get pushed out, probably will get pushed out maybe into 2025, could be customers, core customers like United, Southwest, Ryanair, uh, Alaska Airlines. They, they've been taking the majority of the orders recently. So you'll hear some howling from them. Uh, I think you already heard some howling from United CEO Kirby, right, on the on the MAX 10. Uh, so I think that's what's going to happen. You'll just see deliveries get pushed out, pushed into next year. Hopefully Boeing can recover that and bounce to higher rates. That's all about their recovery. I mean, I just kind of feel like they're kind of too big to fail. They're too big for anybody to really do anything because it's a duopoly, them and Airbus. But what is it like a downside scenario here for Fox? Would it be government regulation? Would it be uh, what's kind of spooking the market? Well, I think you already have part of that downside, right? And that's more intense government um, oversight and regulation. For, frankly, that probably should have occurred anyways. You know, the FAA is also going through some difficult times during the pandemic lost a bunch of personnel. They need their skill sets developed, sharpened. Um, so this process could be slow. Uh, but I don't, I mean, I do think they're, you know, I think they are close to too big to fail, given that they're such an important government contractor. Uh, you know, one of the, the few big primes that could make airplanes in serial production. Mm-hmm. Um, question is, what you know, what could the government do if they had real big problems on the commercial side? I don't think we're there yet, though. I think it, it still is a duopoly. If you wanted to get in the back of the line for an Airbus A320, the competitor right now, you know, if, if we just add up all the orders they have and their production increases, you're out eight years. And I think some some of those orders are definitely long dated orders. So maybe if you got in the back of that line, you'd be out five or six years before you started getting airplanes. That alone is going to keep Boeing, keep folks going towards Boeing for for airplanes. Yeah. But that's only if things don't degrade from here. If things degrade from here, you got a much bigger problem. Thanks to the Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Defense and Airlines Analyst, George Ferguson. All right, coming up on the program, Baker Hughes breaks free from rivals with a lower shale view this year. We speak to the CEO. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BIGO on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. And I'm Alex Steele. And this is Bloomberg. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. 
their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at noon Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Conflict in the Middle East and uncertainty in the global economy have the energy sector facing a lot of unknowns. Baker Hughes, the world's number three oil field contracted by market value, is also feeling the pressure. This week, the firm announced earnings that were below expectations, and analysts are raising concerns. All right, to take us through how Baker Hughes plans to manage all the risks facing oil, we spoke to Lorenzo Simonelli, chairman, president, and CEO at Baker Hughes. First of all, we're coming off some great results in 2023, and also we've laid out a clear strategy as Baker Hughes over the coming years. As you look at 2024, we've given a guidance that is a balanced approach with all of the geopolitical and also uncertainty that's happening around the globe. So we stick to our guidance and we think that we're executing. And as you look at the guidance, we've got considerable growth in 2024 and great performance as well. So if if you're more conservative than your peers, where is the question mark? Is it going to be the new energy orders? Is it going to be onshore demand or is it going to be offshore? Is it domestic or international that has you thinking, questioning the most? You look at what's happening around the world and you see the geopolitics, you see what's happening from the OPEC cuts, you see what's happening from the consolidation in North America. And that leads some uncertainty relative to the activity levels within North America land. Uh, We still see that um, U.S. uh, North America should be flattish, but U.S. land will likely be negative for the year, given some of the consolidation and also some of the activity. International, again, will be in the high single digits, so we still see that being robust. And I think, again, as we look at giving guidance, we're taking a balanced approach to what's taking place around the world at this moment, and also giving a predictability to our investors on what can be achieved and also confidence in what we can achieve. Lorenzo, I just looking at uh, your business here, and I see that about three quarters of your revenue has come from outside of the United States. So obviously you are attuned as much as anyone to the geopolitical risks around the world. What are you telling your investors about, you know, what's happening in Eastern Europe, what's happening in the the Middle East and how that may impact your business? We're telling them that uh, we've taken every caution and also we're managing the situation. We haven't seen any impact and we don't anticipate a big impact, uh, but we do think some of the development plans may be delayed slightly over the long term, no change in what the NOCs and also large customers are laying out from a capital spend. But there may be some, uh, I would say, delays. Again, as we look at the outlook internationally, we're still anticipating high single digit growth. And uh, we think that international is a key place for us to be. And we look to perform there over the coming years. Lorenzo, what's your take on the demand side? Well, Alex, it's always difficult to predict uh, some of these elements, just like it is oil price. And uh, you know this space well. I think demand continues to be uh, robust. A lot of it's going to depend on the economic situation as you look at some of the events unfolding also globally. And uh, we anticipate that, uh, again, demand will increase this year and continue to be strong, especially in the developing world. What are your customers 
telling you here? I know you obviously close, uh, you know, contact with them. But what are they telling you about their spending plans over the next couple of years? Again, it varies. Uh, you've seen in uh, North America, obviously, some consolidation. So people are going through that consolidation and they'll be looking to adjust some of their spending plans in the short term. But again, continuing to be robust on the long term as you continue to see the demand be there. On the international side, these uh, NOCs have multi-year projects that they're executing. There'll be some variation in the timing of those. But again, the long term continues to be solid. And as you look at our guidance, again, we're anticipating that maybe there's uh, some tempered view on some of the pace of the developments, but the mm-hmm. developments are going to happen. Uh, NOC, Paul, just, you know, national oil company. Thank just, you. Just yes, to follow up with the, the, the oil I'm jargon learning, there. Um, Lorenzo, you mentioned the M&A situation, and I find that so interesting because that was one of my questions to all these CEOs when they announced these big mergers is, are you actually going to be slowing your oil production growth over time? And they're all like, no, 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 no. It's, it, it's going to be really good. It's going to keep growing. What do you think that timeline actually looks like? In the beginning, there's synergies. They get more out of the ground, but then that tapers off. What do you notice? So as you look at the uh, normal evolution of uh, consolidation, we've seen this cycle before. Uh, you are going to continue to see uh, production increases, but you're also going to see synergies between the consolidation and as they go through their integration activities. I think you'll likely see some temperate uh, measures relative to some of their procurement. But again, production, they're going to seize the opportunity to continue to increase production as the demand is there. You know, I'm not an expert in this, unlike Alex, but a term I used to hear a lot, and I don't hear it that much anymore, is peak oil. When are we going to be at peak oil? Are we Mm. at peak oil? I don't hear that discussion anymore. So when you're talking to investors, how do you talk to them about the long-term kind of demand for oil? You've got to look at it from a standpoint of the energy transition is going to be multi-decades and it's going to require an energy mix that is abundant of providing as clean as possible fuel sources to the public. And that means oil is going to have a role to play. And we see oil and gas in particular having a strong, robust outlook as we go forward. And the question on peak oil has been asked many times. Hmm. There will be a time when peak oil comes. I think it's uh, not at this stage. And we continue to focus very much on gas and also LNG. Lorenzo, somehow restricting LNG exports in the U.S. is becoming something people are talking about. The permit process has gotten a lot slower. What is going on? Alex, it has gotten slower. And again, we're monitoring the situation. And I'm disappointed because um, as you look at the benefits of uh, U.S. LNG, not only for the U.S., but also for the world and also what's been achieved with the geopolitical uncertainty and also providing to Europe. There's been commitments that have been made and we should continue the U.S. LNG exports and also the permitting of these projects. That being said, international projects are continuing to move forward and we have an expectation that again in 2024, there'll be 65 MTPA uh, FID'd, and we're again seeing about 30 to 60 MTPA FID'd in 25 and 26. And by 2030, there'll be a global capacity in place of 800 MTPA. So, you know, we'll monitor the U.S. situation. It's disappointing. I think it will sort itself out. There's been a lot of commitments that have been made to international partners. Lorenzo, 
I really appreciate that, uh, the conservative approach and then sort of moving a lot faster in the next couple of years. Thanks a lot. I look forward to seeing you next week in Florence, Italy. Thank nice. you. Lorenzo Simonelli, Thank you so much he's chairman, CEO, and president of uh, Baker Hughes. Now we're going to do something that only Paul and I can do. Talk to a CEO, then bring a Bloomberg intelligence analyst who's been covering the company for years on to then talk about it. This is what we can offer you on the Bloomberg Intelligence Show uh, every day. Uh, Scott Levine, he covers oil services for Bloomberg Intelligence. What did you make of the numbers and just talking with Lorenzo in the last 10 minutes? Frankly, the guidance that, uh, that Baker gave for mid-teens EBITDA growth is uh, almost identical to what SLB gave. I think the difference here is probably the conservatism around the messaging, mm -hmm. number one. Certainly the the mid low to mid single digit decline that they're calling for spending growth in North America, high single digit growth in international trails, what we saw out of both of those two companies. And then secondarily, you know, LNG, as you mentioned, is a really big driver for Baker. That's unique to them, certainly much more so for them as a, a producer of modules for LNG plants, which neither SLB and HAL do. And I would say that the, the commentary there was maybe a little bit more uh, downbeat as well. They're looking for modest growth and uh, uh, FID capacity this year. Uh, they focused more on some of the businesses outside of that. So I think it's probably more so the tone out of Baker being a bit more sober mm -hmm. than, uh, than the guidance per se, which was in line with consensus and the growth outlook similar to what we saw at the, uh, the peers there. So I'm looking at the ANR function for uh, Baker, Hughes, Halliburton, all, all the comps. Street likes this stuff. They like these oil services companies. What's the bull call on this? Is this people are going to need oil forever? Yeah, well, they're, you know, they are investing in the future with the energy transition uh, and the new energy business as well. But uh, I think, you know, so look, two years ago, 2022, this group was outstanding, okay. right? You know, the group was up 60%. The market was down close to 20%. Last year, the group performed okay in a much stronger market. And the growth expectations for the group have moderated and are moderating still in 2024. I think within that context, folks are still comfortable with large cap globally diversified oil field service companies like Baker Hughes, like SLB, to a lesser extent Halliburton because mm -hmm. they're more focused on North America, uh, but they're still comfortable with these companies. They're large, they're global, the balance sheets are in good shape, they're returning more than 50% of the free cash to investors. And so that appeals to investors that kind of are attuned to this new energy environment where it's disciplined growth and mm -hmm. capital returns. Uh, rather than the wildcatter mentality. So I think that's it's what I like. Thing. I like the wildcatter. Yeah. Oh. He likes that. Um, yeah, I called SLB Slumberger. I'm definitely going to hear from them later, but <laughs> SLB. Um, so to that point, though, I feel like if you talk to SLB, they'll talk a lot about digitalization and all that kind of stuff, whereas Baker Hughes talks really about LNG, and they build these big terminals. They help to do that, like with the likes of Bechtel, for example. Yeah. Um, do you feel like at some point these guys are going to be, you can really bet on them in different ways? Like, I'm going to bet on Baker Hughes for LNG. I'm going to bet on SLB for an AI component and digitalization. Like, can I do that yet? You can. And I think those are accurate depictions of the business, but I wouldn't 
overstate their significance. Like I feel okay. like Halliburton gets maligned a lot for the North American exposure, and but they the do have some solid international. It's over half their business. I totally didn't know that until yeah. you know the other day. <laughs> but uh, SLB is eighty percent international, and these guys are closer to SLB than they are to Hal in terms of that geographic split. So you know, while the the statement is true, I think it's it's equal parts branding and as, as, as it is the business mix and investors are naturally going to look for ways to differentiate between the companies. And so they'll, you know, they'll gravitate towards the differences more than they will the similarities. But, uh, I think there are a lot of similarities in the balance sheet. All the companies are focused on global markets to less, to more or lesser extent. And so, uh, with, with Baker, the LNG emphasis is a differentiator for mm -hmm. sure. They have a much bigger equipment business than either SLB or Halliburton does. And so it's natural for folks to focus on on that specifically. And and some of the weakness and demand out of Europe maybe is weighing on that story a little bit. But uh, it's still a very strong business for them. That's Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Industrial Services Analyst Scott Levine talking outlook for oil. Following up on our conversation with Baker Hughes Chairman, President and CEO Lorenzo Simonelli. Coming up on the program, we're going to get the outlook on the cruise industry and our award shows fading from the spotlight. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BIGO on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. And I'm Alex Steele. And this is Bloomberg. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at noon Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Royal Caribbean's Icon of the Seas embarks on its first official voyage this weekend. And the journey is sure to make waves. Oh, nice one. Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Credit Analyst Jody Lurie covers the leisure sector. And we spoke with her about it, her sneak peek at the world's largest cruise ship, as well as what to expect from the cruising business in 2024. So when you think of a cruise, it's your standard cruise is you have just rooms 
on the outside, right? The balcony rooms mm -hmm. that you can see the oceans. Then you have the internal rooms with no windows. And so you just have two rows of that, of those sets. And then you have a bunch of floors that have things like dining hall experiences mm -hmm. that are main big dining room. Then you have shows, right? So, so this is Royal Caribbean owns Icon <laughs> yes. of the Seas, right? So, so Royal Caribbean owns Icon of the Seas. Talk to us about the cruise business. You covered from the credit side for Bloomberg Intelligence. Are these good credits? These credits have been a very interesting set to cover. You think about the pandemic and they were sort of written off for dead. Yep. Now they've had this massive turnaround. The momentum around them has been pretty palpable. And I think the icon of the seas, the reason why it's so important is that the narrative around it speaks to this rebirth in the cruise market that we've been seeing. These companies have been generating cash flow. They've been repaying debt. They've been setting their sights on investment grade and have been targeting it as much as they can. They're really trying to bring down their debt loads. I mean, you're talking Carnival is 36 billion, now it's down to 30 billion, and it's going far, you know, farther down. And so I, I appreciate that Paul wants to make this about finance and stuff, because yeah. that's what we do, but I, I want to go back to what it looks like. So, okay, so can, so you laid out sort of what cruise ships normally are, yep. right? So then why is Icon of the Seas different? And I'm asking really because right. that's where the money's going to come from to then Absolutely. pay down debt. So like, it's kind of a market question. It is definitely a market question. So it's, it's the, why are people going to be willing to be one of the 7,600 people on the ship in addition to the 23, 2,400 of crew. Well, they have things like six water slides. Nice. They have ginormous areas for children, as well as, of course, the kids club for you to just check your kids in and leave them there for the whole day. They have different specialty restaurants where they try to rival something like a Las Vegas casino. The feel of it, oh the God. look of it, if you look at it at night, which I got to see it the night before I, I drove by it, it looks like it's lit up like your Vegas. It's like yep. Vegas on water. And I think that's what they're trying to compete with. And I do know for a fact that, you know, we, we actually got to sit down with management a month ago at the Celebrity Ascent naming. And they Celebrity basically- Celebrity Ascent naming? That? What yes. now? So, what, what is that? Oh celebrity <laughs> sent. So celebrity is one of Royal Caribbean's cruise lines, right? So okay. they have, uh, okay. they have celebrity and they have Royal Caribbean. Okay. The Ascent is their newest ship. It's one of their Edge class series, and they had a naming. So all ships have this big naming ceremony where they break the bottle of champagne. Uh, okay. They have I a see. godmother or godfather of the ship, and and they have this whole big ceremony, and it's a big party. So they invited us finance folks on there as well, and we got to sit down with management, and it was before they were in their quiet period they basically told us that they don't see the other cruise lines as competition. What they see as competition is on land mm -hmm. vacations. Oh, that's interesting. So your casinos, your theme parks, that's yeah. where they see them taking share, or that's where they see people, convincing people to go elsewhere. Not to the hotels and the casinos and the theme parks, but on the cruise ship entirely. What are they? What are the cruise companies telling you about businesses, revenge travel over, how's business in 24? So more so than what management is saying, we actually ran a survey that we did the results. Quite a substantial number of people want to travel and want to spend more when they travel this year. Oh. So even though revenge travel, as they call it, post-pandemic revenge travel, that's the people who are cooped up inside, want to go places, don't care how much they spend. Even though that might be fading and a lot of companies have indicated that, at the same time, the conversation around people spending on experiences is still very much there. Whether that holds up into the end of the year as we see what the Fed does, as we see all the different sort of economic points and pain points come out, I, I think it remains to be seen, but we are seeing that people are prioritizing experiences over stuff, and they continue to do so. And and the way, the way that the cruise lines benefit is that they get to 
encourage people to spend on onboard spending. So all the add-on features. Oh. Yep. So you go mm-hmm. to their perfect day at Coco Cay Island. Guess what? You want a cabana and another, you know, fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars for the day. Oh. oh. All right. For speaking of, of this research, you can go to you can just get uh, Jody's Jody Lurie's bio if you're sitting in front of a terminal, uh, and you can put her bio up there and it lists all her research. And that's is the top research notice point uh, published today. Focus on cruising in 2024 BI survey. So check that out. I'm still well, here's, astounded. Well, here, here's the thing. We went down to Aruba. We went to a resort. Yes. They give you the little bracelet. Yeah. Oh, man. That's your key to your room. You want to buy anything, you just go bing, bing. bing. Wow, they make it so easy And, and you don't know you're doing money. it. And all of a sudden, you're paying. You're like, wait, what? This was all, all That's inclusive. That's why mm-hmm. this year, we went to an all-inclusive yeah. Oh, that was the way to go. But aren't go. there also add-ins for, most, for all-inclusives too? No. Like all-inclusive, but this super fancy restaurant no. isn't included? No, I mean, if you want to buy like a, a bottle of wine, that, that, that was extra. Mm-hmm. But I should have done that when I had four kids. Because yes. you, you check out every resort and your bill is like 50 pages. I mean, we're seeing that Marriott, we're seeing Four Seasons, they're going into the smaller vessel ships. We're seeing that people who used to like Crystal, which was the high end, and it went through a little bit of a restructuring, uh, just a little bit, <laughs> that people are then going over to these higher end ships. And they are also going to the Norwegian higher end lines. Mm. So Norwegian has a few higher end lines. Carnival has a few higher end lines. So people are moving to there from these other ships because they are smaller vessel. They are much more manageable. You're, you're viewing it both as a way to lounge, but as a way to get to Aruba yeah. or what, wherever. What I feel like this reminds me of is what people are doing with, with airlines, right? No one wants basic economy. They all want to trade up. So everyone goes to business class. And then all the people who normally fly business class are like, get me out of here. And they go to first <laughs> class or they go to private. Like, I feel like it's, it's just sort of the up tier at the it's end of the day. It's all part everything. So everybody all right. wants to feel like a VIP. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, Wait, we're not VIPs? I know. That's the model. I mean, you, you look at all the rooms. I mean, they have the suite room and they have this suite room and the presidential suite and then this suite and then that suite. And that's all designed to make everybody feel special and feel like they're a VIP. And also to make it Instagrammable because well, and, that's the and age we're Jody in. Jody was posting on social and she had a <laughs> lovely room with a lovely view. That it was, was great pretty view. cool. It was a great view. I mean, any view of the water is a great view. So yeah. just to end for a moment on finance stuff, um, <laughs> would you like any of these credits? Like, what's your favorite play? So I do think that the cruise lines in general still have some room to run as compared to other parts of leisure. I think that other parts of leisure, it's really more of a company by company story. So something like a SeaWorld has been repaying debt, they've been restructuring their capital structure, and it's been very positive for them in that sense. But from a momentum in terms of travel, you know, that top line isn't necessarily going to grow as much. We're still seeing that the cruise lines are benefiting from that booking. Similarly, we're seeing a mixed result in the hotel space. So you have the Marriott's of the world, you have the Hilton's of the world. Those companies have been improving from a growth standpoint and have been focusing on other parts of the market. But you have something like a choice that's in a hostile takeover with Wyndham. Mm -hmm. And so that that kind of throws it out the water and you say, okay, we don't really know what we're going to do with this, but this is a company that is not necessarily in in good standing from a credit quality standpoint. That was Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Credit Analyst Jody Laurie. Let's turn now to entertainment, where waning audience numbers are causing big concern for award shows like the Oscars. We spoke with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Bobby Ghosh about why viewers are less inclined to watch a three and a half hour TV extravaganza. So, you know, all the award shows, Oscars, Emmys, uh, Golden Globes, uh, the, the audiences have been dropping 
precipitously over the past decade. It used to be that an Oscar night would be 40 million uh, viewers, and then it became about 30s. Now it's down to, you know, if they get 10, 12, then they're lucky. Last year, there was a little bit of an uptick. I think a lot of people uh, sort of basically dialed in to see if there'd be a repeat of Will Smith's <laughs> slap on uh, sure. Chris Rock. There wasn't a slap. This year, ironically, the nominations are going to get a lot of buzz for the reasons we've just been talking about. Because uh, Margot Robbie gets snubbed, because Greta Gerwig gets snubbed, there'll be a lot of buzz around the nominations. But for those exact same reasons, I suspect fewer people will watch the actual mm -hmm. Oscars. It's too long. It's, uh, you, you know, they're just too much... Uh, uh, sort of pomp and circumstance and very little actual content and most people will will consume the highlights on uh, YouTube and on TikTok on on that's yeah, not what the ABC media. television network wants to hear that's, I mean because they I mean that's it, historically these events which uh, uh, the CEO former CEO of CBS would call oh wow uh, events mm. that's what brings in huge advertising dollars so well that's so just another emblematic of the overall issue of TV cord cutting and so yeah, on. Yeah, they'll sell out the ads. They sold out the ads the last time as well, last year as well, but at a lower rate. Mm -hmm. So that's something that they need to worry about. If they'll, you know, sufficient numbers of people will tune in that advertisers will still remain interested in uh, the event, but for progressively or, you know, smaller and smaller amounts of and money. And here goes this, this is the sales pitch that broadcast and cable television have been making to Madison Avenue for 30 years. Yeah. Okay, here's the pitch. I'm ready. I'm gonna give you an inferior product to what I gave you last year, I'm gonna charge you more. That's not going this way anymore, And it though. works every single year. Wait, so they're charging more for this space right now? Every year, up until the last couple of years when cord cutting became so bad, but broadcast and cable television would say, yeah, I know my ratings are down because there's 500 more more channels. But still, I have the biggest audience at CBS. Yes, it's half of what it was 10 years ago, but it's still bigger than anything else out there. Oh, by the way, for that, I'm going to charge another 5, 6, 7, 8%. And that worked forever. Now the issue is... Yeah, I don't think that can be sustained for very we'll much see. longer. We'll see. I don't know. Yeah, I think, again, you know... If Unless they, you're the Super Bowl. If you're the Super Bowl, you can go out and sports say... Sports is a different category. Yeah. Um, but, you know, sports... If, if you're a fan, you don't want to just watch the highlights. You want to watch the the live performance. But with Oscars, with any award show, more and more people are quite happy just to see the highlights immediately after yeah. the award yeah. is announced. They well, don't want to watch the whole... Uh, you awkward know, the, moments. The awkward moments, the songs, the skits. Uh, you know, it, it seems like too much of a that used to be thing. That used to be must-watch it, it Really, I know. It I, goes I, to John Tucker's The Whole World's Coming to an End. Well, yeah. I would have Oscar parties. Literally, we'd like do both. We'd put in money. We'd like people walk home with a couple hundred bucks. Like, it was, it was like <laughs> a thing. Can you bet on the other? I guess you can, like... At, with people in my home, sure. Right. I mean, oh, like in in the reality of the right, world. Maybe I might be into it. Though. Maybe. <laughs> um, but but what I also wonder too is, do you think that these kind of live events will go the way of sports in different ways of viewing it? Like we saw WWE and Netflix, for example. Yeah. Like, would Paramount be like, hey, let's just air it streaming and 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 save some? Like, is that a thing? Well, I think you probably, if the audience continues to shrink, they'll have to find new mm -hmm. ways of making it relevant. I, you know, in 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 time, I think you'll see the duration of it shrink. I don't think a three and a half hour program, which invariably goes closer to four hours, I don't think that's sustainable anymore. This year, they're bringing it forward. They're starting broadcast an hour early because they're conscious that in that last hour, past bedtime in uh, the East Coast, a lot of people, the next day is a school day, lots of people just switch off. And that's a real problem for them. So they're bringing it forward to try and see if they can sort of juice the audience that way. Mm -hmm. um, I think you'll probably see certain amount of stunt casting in in, uh, 
in the in the people who are hosts or presenters. We've seen that happen in the Oscar, in the Olympics, for instance. You know, Olympic audiences have been down. NBC has been bringing in people like Snoop Dogg to right. to, <laughs> to try and get audiences interested. I, I I say okay, let's have a let's have a a switch and get some Olympic performers to present the Oscars. I'll watch Simone Biles. Well, ABC the doesn't have oh, the rights. Totally ABC doesn't have the rights to the Olympics. So you're not that's true, see but that. you can bring uh, an athlete in. So yep, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's a good thing. I mean, you're bringing in athletes to just some stunt hosting. As you, as yeah, I think you'll, you'll see presenters. progressively more and more desperate attempts to try and hold on to that audience. But I think that ship has sailed. Our thanks to Bloomberg Opinion columnist Bobby Ghosh. That's this week's edition of Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. And remember, you can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BIGO on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. And this is Bloomberg. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.